0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today we'd like to bring attention back to an urgent issue that the media addressed this past February and seems to have moved on from. But we at Animals Today have not. Between December 2022 and February 2023, 23 whales were found dead along the East Coast. The number of deceased whales beached along the East Coast in 2023 is now at 27, according to NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. While that number might not be record-setting yet this year, it is far too many lives lost at far too rapid of a pace. The majority of these whale deaths were those of humpback whales, a species whose population has only just started to bounce back after hunting them became illegal, finally, in 1985. Various explanations are given by experts and various commentators on why the pace of whale deaths have been accelerated for the early part of this year. For starters, an obvious cause has been vessel strikes. Cargo ships are traversing in the same waters with whales more often than they were before. Warming sea temperatures are felt to be contributing to changing the whales' migration patterns along with closer approaches to the shore. And cargo ships are growing ever larger and are in greater use. In the New York, New Jersey area alone, there's been a 27% increase in shipping traffic from 2019 to 2022. However, what I find suspicious is the nature of the reporting about the recent cluster of whale deaths from December 2022 to February 2023. For example, the New York Times reports that Quote, for more than half of all whales found stranded, investigators are not able to determine a definitive cause of death. You know, these days when I read or hear the phrase like, cannot be definitively determined, or something like no conclusive evidence, I immediately think, well, you're gonna have to do a little better than that for me to accept that that is the real state of affairs. Who are these so-called experts and reporters? On what data are they relying? Do they have an unstated agenda? Is there willful neglect about really trying to find out? You know, after all the untruths and outright lies around COVID, sorry, but it's nearly impossible to know whom to trust anymore, and I'm certainly not going to accept at face value proclamations like these. And you know something else? Phrases like, no conclusive evidence, have another effect, which is to make the reader stop thinking and wondering about the question itself. Like, dear reader, don't look any further into this as there's nothing you could do anyway. So continuing, how, how is it possible that for more than half of all whales found dead, a cause of death cannot be determined? Now, you should know these deaths have coincided with the newly approved development of approximately 12 wind farms from the coasts of Massachusetts to the shores of Virginia. New Jersey has one of the most aggressive goals for quickly building offshore wind farm construction by 2035. And they also already have the most whale deaths so far this year. The United States Department of Energy released a statement in April responding to this theory conveying that the link between developing offshore wind farms and recent whale deaths is, quote, misinformation and asserted that there's no evidence to support the idea. In their statement, they also emphasize the importance of quickly building wind farms when it comes to addressing our climate crisis. So we know the goals and agenda of the DOE. And as before, the use of the term misinformation has become even worse than meaningless to me. When I hear that, I think, you are lying. You are trying to unethically change or slant the narrative. And sure, working toward cleaner energy most people think important, but at what cost? Developing clean energy should not, and need not, endanger a population of innocent majestic whales. So in a minute we're going to look at two important factors, construction noise and increased vessel traffic. Both of these are known to endanger whales. But first, let me just tell you this. Whale and Dolphin Conservation, a nonprofit working to ensure that every whale and dolphin can live freely and safely, goes into further detail on the ways in which offshore wind farms could harm whales. They share this quote. Noise, vessel traffic, entanglement, displacement from habitat, changes to prey availability and therefore feeding and breeding activity, increased disturbance, interaction with existing risks, and possibly more that are currently unknown. Offshore wind farms will be in place for decades and the potential effects on whales and dolphins could last many years, impacting multiple generations. Risks to vulnerable populations are especially concerning given the long time spans needed for their recovery. Now, this is a group I personally trust, certainly more than the Department of Energy, that's for sure. And so when they say the impact may be severe, but are not fully known, to me, that means proceed with extreme caution. And yet the industry and the government thinking is that We can't attribute all the deaths to the construction, and we cannot be even 100% sure that any deaths were caused by the construction. And so, don't worry for now. We're just going to go full steam ahead with construction. But what about the whales? Well, try not to think too hard about them. Okay, so more on noise and increased vessel traffic, starting with noise. In 2002, the U.S. Navy admitted that their sonar was responsible for the stranding of at least six whales. In 2019, one of the major worries addressed by environmentalists and energy companies alike in the media was the noise that results from pile driving into bedrock to build the offshore wind farms, something that is extremely disruptive to nearby whales. Norwegian energy company Equinor developed a construction method known as gravity foundations in which they lower prefab cement foundations for the wind turbines rather than pile driving. Catherine Bowes from the National Wildlife Federation applauded Equinor's approach because, as she puts it, whales are extremely sensitive to noise, so avoiding the extremely noisy process of pile driving is a big step. They could potentially take one really large threat to whales off the table. So people in the industry seem to be revealing what much of the media would rather you not think about. For companies and organizations in 2023 to dismiss that threat is a direct dismissal of what scientists and experts publicly already addressed four whole years ago. At this point, construction on wind farms that does not utilize the methods that Catherine Bowie's previously approved of are committing abuse towards whales. And yet, NOAA currently writes on their website that, quote, There is no scientific evidence that noise resulting from offshore wind site characterization surveys could potentially cause mortality of whales. Well, sorry, NOAA. I don't believe you. The other threat that the wind farms bring happens after construction is completed. Once boat activity around the site increases during operational stages, the risk of ships striking whales in the area is perhaps the greatest threat of all increased activity concerns people like Alex Castitas a member of the National Marine Fisheries Services Working Group for Marine Mammal Unusual Mortality Events. He recently remarked, this is about a pretty stressed marine environment that we are continuing to stress at increasing rates while really having a very poor understanding of what the ultimate impacts are. So if you're starting to feel a sense of outrage you're not alone. Clean Ocean Action, 40-year-old nonprofit whose mission is to defend the ocean, has staff cataloging the beached whales this year, and has an activechange.org petition to demand independent investigation of whale deaths. And nearly 400,000 people have signed it as of this broadcast date. Now, I want to contrast these current whale deaths to the historical whaling industry, which peaked from the early 1800s to the late 1800s, the era of Melville's Moby Dick. Now, the mass killing of so many whales for their products did literally fuel human progress at a time before petroleum, coal, oil, kerosene, and related energy sources were known. But those were times when there was no regard to the lives of the whales, and certainly not for the health of the ocean's ecosystems, a concept which was unknown at the time. It was just the raw economics of that age, at a time before our enlightenment. But now, really, we know better. We the people of the world should act accordingly. But as in the case in many of our policy and cultural debates, I'm afraid there's never going to be a satisfactory resolution. Public outcry and possibly the voices of a few legislators may be the main tools of whale protectors. Alas, we are at a time in which green energy, the industry and the agencies, the lawmakers, the media, everyone, is in the position of most power. So, regrettably, I'm not optimistic about the fate of the whales and the ability to meaningfully slow down wind farm construction. The government has set its sights on building clean energy, and it's unlikely that they will change course for a few whales. Even though to us, every individual whale life lost is a tragedy for the government and energy companies constructing these wind farms, it seems they are willing to push their green energy agenda no matter the consequences. And yes, we certainly understand the push for clean energy, but cannot accept their destructive methods when it comes to realizing it. Pioneering conservationist William Leopold, in a letter to a friend, wrote that the situation is hopeless, should not prevent us from doing our best. Well, the current situation may seem hopeless, but maybe it's not. Maybe we could make a difference. We must try. You probably know the musician Graham Nash. Now he's in his 80s. He penned and performed so many wonderful and iconic pop and rock songs many of us grew up with. And through his music, he's always been a strong voice for justice, peace, love, and environmental protection. He wrote a song titled To the Last Whale, which he still performs. He has played versions of it with his fellow traveler, David Crosby, as well. It's a haunting tune and very sad. Part of the lyrics go, Over the years you swam the ocean, following feelings of your own. Now you are washed up on the shoreline. I can see your body lie. It's a shame you have to die to put the shadow on our eye. I've not been able to find any accounts of Nash's opinion of the current offshore wind farm expansion, nor of the whale deaths we've been discussing. But I wonder what he would say if asked about the strong possibility that humpback whales are dying consequent to aggressive wind farm construction and deployment. It's a conundrum, to say the least. Whales versus wind farms. In an effort to provide a bit of optimism as we conclude, we at Animals Today would like to point out some great organizations that you could support in an effort to save whale lives in the midst of the massive struggles they are facing. Check out and sign the petition from Clean Ocean Action. Consider symbolically adopting a whale through the Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Or donate to the Wildlife Conservation Society's Ocean Giants Program that conducts research on how to minimize harm to our marine friends. We offer these as possible ways to spark or direct your own activism to try to help save our majestic and beloved whales.
1: Welcome back. So, the disease rabies. Yes. It's pretty uncommon in the United States. Last year, five people died from rabies, and that was actually more than it has been in uh, previous years. Four of them, it was determined, were due to bats, and one from a dog. Actually, you know those are pretty uncommon. The case of the patient bitten by a dog that actually occurred in the Philippines before he returned to the United States uh, where he passed away. Folks who were in direct contact with rabid bats It brings up an interesting question, and that is frequently people who are bitten by bats don't realize that they have been bitten because they can be asleep or the bites can be extremely small and not noticed. So the rule of thumb as illustrated by this case I'm about to tell you is that if you live among bats like they discover a roost in your home or if you wake up and there's a bat in your room you need to assume that you have been exposed and bitten and that the saliva is infected and that you are in trouble. That's now, so
0: interesting you, yeah. that you're saying that because I just read something the other day when I knew you we were bringing this case up about the rabies. Yeah. The CDC does recommend that if you find that you were sleeping with a bat somehow, then they automatically suggest you get the rabies vaccination, assuming you were just bitten by a bat and you don't know it.
1: Right. You have to assume. And they want to, in that case, give you what they call PEP, the post-exposure prophylaxis. Is that right? Yes. So that is the immunoglobulin plus the series of four vaccines, I think, that you get. right. If, however, you're able to capture the lone bat and then they test it and show that it does not have rabies, then you can avoid that. But you may not want to avoid that.
0: Because you may not want to
1: capture the bat, right? Well, but the other reason is that you just might not want the treatment. And that happened to this elderly guy who's actually in his 80s, who's from Illinois. He awoke to find a bat on his neck. And he was offered the series and he declined it. And he died that horrible death that people with rabies die. You know, it's a terrible progressive thing. And once your symptoms start, it's unrelenting and you're dead within uh, two weeks. And the... You know, PEP is not as terrible as it used to be in the bad old days. So it's rare. It still happens, though. And, and uh, not so much in, in dogs. We've pretty much eradicated, right, the rabid dog problem in our country, which is wonderful. So, Lori, you like bats. You find them cute and
0: mysterious and warm and fuzzy. I love all animals. Yes, yes okay. But that's a really incredible story. I mean, you wake up with a bat on your neck. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you just assume he bit you and you don't know it. Yeah. But. Was it really a bat? Was it really a bat? Maybe it was a bird. I remember as a kid, my parents would take me and my siblings on camping trips. And I remember on one of these trips, we were joined by other campers. And one evening we saw many bats flying about. And this one woman, fellow camper, became hysterical and especially she had this fear related to the bats, not about contracting rabies, but worried the bats would fly and get tangled in her hair. Mm. So she ran into her tent and wrapped a scarf around her head, and that's what she would do every night on this trip. And you can't ask me, Peter, where where I was or anything else about this camping trip because I don't remember. The only thing I remember is that's this woman who tried to convince all of us, and freaking everyone out, especially the women with long hair, that they should be worried that a bat would get tangled in our hair. Yeah. Peter, remember all the bats that would appear at dusk when we were living in Palm Springs? Yeah. yeah. There'd be not. Just an occasional bat, but dozens flying above us.
1: They didn't, they didn't seem interested in me, but no, I they was didn't. interested in going into
0: the house whenever that happened. Yeah, I so know I you were. I wasn't really comfortable out. So there are a lot of misconceptions about rabies, though. Veterinarian Robert Reed was on the show a while back talking about this topic of rabies. So briefly, the rabies virus can infect any Mammal. The vast majority of rabies cases reported to the CDC each year occur in wild animals like bats, raccoons, skunks, foxes, although any mammal can get rabies, even people. And one big myth is that the rabies in dogs and cats is common. And as you pointed out, it's not. Robert was explaining that we do not see rabies often in dogs and cats in the United States, and we don't see a lot of it because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s. And that was largely through vaccination programs. So it's extremely rare to encounter rabies in a dog or a cat or any domestic animal, and rabies is even more rare in people. But the interesting thing is the rabies virus has not gone away after thousands of of years. So it's still a risk. So efforts to control it still continues. So rabies is a viral disease and it's most often transmitted through a bite of a rabid animal. So the virus is passed through the saliva from A bite from a rabid animal. And the rabies virus infects the central nervous system, as you mentioned, ultimately causing disease in the brain and progressive neurological problems and invariably death. Peter, I read that rabies has the highest mortality rate, 99.9% of any disease on earth. So, the key is to get treated right away if you think there's any chance of you being bitten by an animal that has rabies. How do you know if an animal has rabies?
1: Okay. Uh, It is acting aggressively.
0: Well, the answer is, the correct answer is, you don't know. Okay. What you were about to say could be another misconception people think that all rabid animals are foaming at the mouth and active aggressively but you really don't know if an animal's rabid just by looking at it i read that many wild animals who have rabies actually act shy or timid and that's not the way wild animals normally act so that's when you want to steer away from them so what do you do if you get bitten by an animal? because there's really no way to know if the animal that bit you is rabid and by the way you can't just wait it out and take your time and see if you develop symptoms because if you're bitten by a rabid animal. There are no symptoms at first. Rabies can lay dormant in your body for like one to three months. This is what they call the incubation period. Symptoms start to appear once the virus travels through your central nervous system and hits your brain. So you might get a fever, but then you start to get these central nervous system symptoms like anxiety, hyperactivity, being easily agitated, inability to sleep. Sounds like us (laughs) and everyone you know, right? But you might also be confused. You can start to hallucinate. You might salivate more than usual. You might develop a paralysis. You might have difficulty swallowing and then eventually coma, heart or lung failure and death. So let's go back to What do you do if you're bitten by a wild animal or say you're bitten by a domestic animal, a dog, who you know is not vaccinated against the rabies virus or a dog who you don't know his or her vaccination status? Then your doctor or say a typical emergency room would likely treat you to potentially prevent a rabies infection. And that treatment is the rabies vaccine, which you talked about. The important thing to know here is The vaccine is always successful if it's given immediately after exposure to the rabies virus. And like you said, it's called post-exposure rabies vaccination. You'll get one dose of this fast-acting rabies immune globulin, and then you get a series of vaccine shots over the next several days. And that is a precaution that I think any ER in the country would take if someone comes in with a bite from an animal that could be carrying rabies. And the reason there's so much caution is that there's not much you can do if you contract the rabies virus and you get rabies. It's almost universally fatal. So the treatment is prevention, essentially.
1: I feel very agitated.
0: Hard time sleeping. Yes. Irritability, hyperactivity. Too many cats in the bed. (laughs) You're foaming at the mouth, Peter. (laughs) Welcome back to the show. Incredible animal adaptations. That's the topic of this segment. When we talk about adaptations, we're talking about characteristics that allow animals to survive in their environment. It can be structural, physiological, or behavioral characteristics. Peter, we're going to talk about a few crazy ones, okay?
1: Ready, ready, ready.
0: The Alaskan wood frog. This is a cute little guy, and what he does is he turns himself into a frog-shaped ice cube when the temperatures drop. Mm -hmm. So instead of hibernating like many animals do to survive the cold, these frogs find a burrow and freeze. And literally all their bodily functions just stop working. Digestion, respiration, even their heart stops beating. And then spring comes, the weather becomes warmer, and they slowly thaw, they wake up, and begin feeding and mating. Peter, this reminds me of the freezing iguanas in Florida that were dropping from the trees. Did you hear about that story? Yeah,
1: yeah, last couple months ago.
0: Yeah, it was a cold winter in Florida this year and apparently it got cold enough where the iguanas were found to go into a dormant or cold stunned state. And then they would drop from the trees where they were living. So you're walking around and you see iguanas lying on their back with four legs up in the air like looking like they're dead. But they're not, and they remain breathing with their critical body functions still operating, and then they thaw out and wake up when the sun warms their bodies. So it's different than the Alaskan wood frog I was just talking about. This is not an adaptation. Iguanas are invasive to Florida. They're from parts of Central and South America close to the equator where it always stays warm, so they're not used to the cold, and extreme cold could be life-threatening to iguanas. Anyway, they were warning Floridians that if they see iguanas lying on the ground or on the street or sidewalk looking like they're dead, they're not. So don't pick them up. Don't move them. Don't throw them away like trash because when they warm up and wake up, they're not going to be happy. No.
1: The male green iguana, I read about this, can weigh up to 17 pounds. So you don't want one to fall on you. 17 pounds, that could be five feet in length. And you're right, they are invasive, and uh, Florida, in uh, 2021, passed some new regulations. Uh, you're no longer allowed to have iguanas and other lizards, exotic lizards, as pets. And uh, if you have one, you can keep it. It gets grandfathered, so you have to have them microchipped, and you have to re-register them every year. Wow. But uh, they are uh ruining environment, you know, ruining people's yards, and... Uh, And their days are numbered in Florida. They're beautiful, though.
0: Yeah, but you wouldn't want them falling on you. (laughs) don't want them falling. (laughs) Peter, if you're scuba diving and you're about to be stung by a sea creature, would you rather that creature be a stingray or a reef stonefish?
1: Okay, I'll go with stingray unless it's in the heart.
0: The most venomous known fish is the reef stonefish. And if you look this fish up online, it looks like a a pretty rock. Yeah. They live in coral reefs and their colors fit in perfectly for the environment and it's able to camouflage itself amongst the rocks and they sit perfectly still on the seafloor. So not only does this help protect the stonefish from predators since they're disguising themselves well, this also offers them a way to get their prey because what they do is they just wait, looking like the other rocks and around them, and until the prey, usually reef comes to it. And then with its huge mouth, it ambushes its prey and sucks them down. Wow, sucks it in. <laughs> wow, that is horrible. But wait, so if you're a human and you're enjoying the waters and you step on it because you think it's just a pretty rock at the bottom of the seafloor, well, what happens is the pressure of your foot on their back Activates the venom sacs in their in their spines, and this venom is probably the most venomous in the world, and it will likely kill you. So the answer is you would rather be stung by a stingray or probably anything else in the waters than this reef yeah. stonefish. So did I just ruin your future snorkeling or scuba plans you yeah. might have in the future? I don't even want to go in the bathtub with one. <laughs> okay, it's horrible. Okay, how about this one? If you're hiking in Australia. And you see a dog-like animal coming at you, intending to bite you. Mm. Would you hope that it's a Tasmanian devil, which typically weighs on average like 20 pounds, so like the size of a small dog? Yeah. Or do you hope it's a dingo, which is a wild dog native to Australia? Okay.
1: I'm going to say, boy, so many questions raised here. I'm going to think the Tasmanian devil has bad mouth bacteria. So you're going to die from infection. But the dingo probably has friends who are going to swarm you and eat you as a pack. So I'll go with the dingo.
0: Yes. Ah. You would like to be bitten by a dingo <laughs> yes, than that's... a Tasmanian devil. Okay, but Because why? the Tasmanian devil has the most powerful bite oh, okay. in the world relative to its body size of any living mammalian carnivore. It has a bite strength of 1,200 PSI, pounds per square inch. I'm not sure how strong that is, 1,200 pounds per square inch. But for comparison, the lion's bite is 650 PSI. So the bite on this little 20-pound Tasmanian devil has twice the force. I guess mm. its it would be force, right? Yeah. Pounds equal yeah. to force? Yeah. yeah. And by the way, the hippopotamus... Has the strongest bite of all land animals at about 1820
1: PSI. Mm-hmm. We knew a dog that lived in the neighborhood, a little dog, and had a pretty strong little bite and had a, an affinity for like shoes and jeans.
0: And, yes. Uh, t- And (laughs) this little dog, our neighbor's little dog with the strong bite, ripped through my favorite jeans of all time. You know, when you have these jeans for like two decades, you just love them. They're worn in perfectly Uh for your body. And Now they have a hole and you're not wearable anymore. They're not wearable. Mm. Okay. If an animal is going to chase you in Africa, who would you have a better chance running away from? Okay. A hippo? Or a cheetah?
1: Oh, I think cheetahs are fast, so I'm gonna say you can run away from a
0: hippo more easily. Okay, so cheetahs are the world's fastest land animals. They can reach speeds up to 70 miles per hour. What can accelerate faster, a cheetah or a Ferrari? Oh, I'm gonna go, let's see, with the cheetah. Yes! They can go from zero to 60 in three seconds. Mm. And think of this, Peter, in one stride, one long step, a cheetah can travel 20 to 25 feet. Yeah, that's good. What makes a cheetah run so fast? Well, among other things, like their small, lightweight body, long but huge leg muscles that expand very fast, loose shoulder joints and their long muscular tail that works like a rudder and helps them maneuver when they run. But another impressive adaptation is cheetahs have super long and flexible spines. So when their spine flexes and then straightens, that actually maximizes their stride length. And there are these YouTubes out there where cheetahs are running in slow motion. They're so cool. Have you seen those?
1: I don't remember.
0: Look at a cheetah running in slow motion and just look at their backs and you can just see how it extends and then the back goes way up like a coil spring. It's really cool. And running and their speed is the thing they do and they do well. And that's their adaptation to survive they don't fight well they don't defend themselves well they're meant to run peter i sent you that youtube of an octopus changing its color as it's traveling along the seafloor
1: yeah what did you think of that i no cheat is involved in this one but that was just (laughs) the colors are are just amazing amazing the camouflage
0: so you might wonder how do they do that how do they change colors and so quickly yeah to match so perfectly their surroundings. Well, octopuses like squid and cuttlefish are called cephalopods. And all these guys can change color to match like perfectly to their surroundings. And the way they do this is that they have specialized cells in their skin, which are called chromatophores, makes sense, right? Chromo in Greek means color and phores means bearing. So they have color bearing cells in their skin that have these sacs that are filled with pigment. And these sacs can be yellow, brown, red, or black in color. When they contract their muscles around the cell, the pigment sac widens. And that's the prominent pigment you'll see on the octopus's skin. And when muscles around the cell relaxes, the pigment sac shrinks and less of that pigment or color is visible. Yeah. Octopuses typically live on the bottom or you know just hovering slightly above the seafloor so they can be cruising along and they can use their chromatophores to change their color of their skin to blend in with their surroundings. So they're camouflaged and they camouflage themselves into the rocks and corals and they can also change the texture of their skin to try to match the texture of the surroundings. Is that cool or That's what? That's pretty neat. Wow. So now you know all about chromatophores. Thank you. Okay, so stick around, we have some more neat animal adaptations coming up. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly, worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo Medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But, don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. For
1: more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org.
0: Welcome back to the show. So, for our listeners that don't know by now, Peter and I moved from Palm Springs, California to the beautiful state of Arizona. And one animal here in the Sonora Desert that we come across every now and then that did not exist in the Southern California Desert is the javelina. And indeed, javelina are native to the Arizona-Sonora Desert. And... Peter, after we saw that family of Havelina last month when we were wa- out walking, yep. I was curious to know specifically what javelina eat and if they need to drink water, right? And assuming they eat cactus, how they eat these sharp plants without hurting themselves. That's interesting. Yeah. And before I get into the javelina's adaptation, why don't you tell the listeners about our walking paraphernalia when we take the dogs outside in the mornings? like? What's that thing in your pants that you whip <laughs> out in case Stop. of a emergency? Okay.
1: Well, it's true that uh, even on uh, residential sidewalks, you're usually surrounded, unless you're downtown. You know, surrounded by shrubs, and that is a lot of uh, cacti and a lot of sharp things. And particularly the choya variety of, of cacti, and there's a couple of different varieties here. They uh, have a tendency to sort of give off little versions of themselves. Right? I don't know exactly the, the term, but they are very clingy. And you can just see them uh, if you look carefully on the ground where you think you're walking safely. And there's just this uh, you know, round, spiky thing that's really nasty because uh, they're hard to get off and they hurt like, like heck. So, and they're fine. They're very, very fine, right? They're fine. And uh, to get them off, you just don't want to touch them. So you need to use a tool. Right. And I am aware of two tools that people carry with them. So now I'm carrying my needle nose pliers, maybe four or five inches. And uh, sometimes we let the dog carry it in the pouch, but usually it's my pocket. And that is helpful to grab or flick the uh, little nasty off your foot or dog's paw. And some people advocate using like a hair comb, and that works ni- nicely too. I've seen that. So... That's our adaptation to uh, getting around. So tell me about the javelinas.
0: Though. Okay, but wait, let eat? me go back to that because that's a very important point. It's better than, like you said, it's very sticky. So if you try to remove it with your hands, it's going to be stuck into you. Okay. And if you try to just break it off, you have the risk of breaking off a little piece into the dog's paw or into the dog's and then skin. And then you still have to get that thing out. Right, right. So, so pulling gently, it out gently with the needle nose pliers or a comb is a good idea. Yeah. So back to the javelina. Okay. Those of you who might not know what javelina look like, and I really didn't know until I moved to Arizona, javelinas look like small pigs with large heads and long snouts. Is that a good way to describe their appearance? That's a good first approximation. Okay. They travel around in family groups, and they're most active around dawn or dusk. Javelina eats certain leaves and shrubs and grasses and lizards and toads and mice and whatever else they might run into, but their favorite thing to eat is prickly pear cactus. Yeah. Do you know what those look like, Peter?
1: I do. Little paddles.
0: Paddles. Yes. Little paddles with a lot of sharp... Yeah. Okay. So their jaws are well adapted for crushing and slicing, and they have super tough mouths and specialized digestive systems, which allow them to eat this prickly pear cactus and not feel the thousands wow. of tiny spines on them. So they ingest them. Yes. Oh,
1: I just thought maybe they would eat around No,
0: them. they ingest them. Gee. And by the way, these cacti are loaded with water, so this gives the javelina a nice source of water as well. I will tell you that other animals eat cactus as well, These include camels, the desert tortoise, rabbits, and squirrels. Yeah. Okay, one more adaptation. Most people know that owls can twist their heads almost completely all the way around. Actually, they can turn their heads about 270 degrees. That's not quite a circle, but pretty close. If you consider how many degrees you can twist your head around rapidly without tearing a bunch of tendons and severing major arteries. Angle is getting smaller and smaller. That's right. (laughs) I know. Or you can imagine turning your head too much might prevent blood flow from going to your brain and causing a stroke, right? So how is the owl capable of twisting his head almost completely around? and not block off any major vessels. Well, the arteries feeding the brain of the owl are lined up just so that they're not blocked off when the owl twists. So typically vessels get smaller as they get farther from the heart and to an organ like the brain. But in the case of the owl, studies were done over a decade ago on dead owls, and scientists found that the vertebral artery enlarges as it approaches the brain. So... The thought was that these enlarged areas may function as reservoirs for blood so that the brain has extra blood to work with as the head turns. Something like that. Interesting. Cool animal adaptations, right? (laughs) Very nice. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Wow. What you got there?
1: Oh, a couple of news items to round out the day? That would be nice. Okay. First to... um... Britain, they are dealing with the problem of frogs and other amphibians getting stuck in roadside drains and getting unable to climb out and ultimately perishing. And that's really harming the population of these sort of semi-urban animals there's a team they go by an acronym WART Wart which is the Warwickshire Amphibium and Reptile team and they are installing little aluminum ladders down the drain so that the frogs as they're after they fall in they're able to climb out and continue going to their breeding sites that's what's motivating them obviously
0: oh that's so nice so
1: they're installing them and we'll see if they can maintain the population because you know they're so essential to the systems and we don't want the frogs drowning. Indeed. In Sydney, Australia, everybody knows the Sydney Opera House yes. and the harbor there, Sydney Harbor Bridge. It's one of the most popular tourist destinations and photographed places on planet. Anyway, they have trouble with uh, pesky birds, seabirds, bothering the diners who are eating outside there right? We've walked past there. Mm -hmm. So uh, they are employing dogs on long leads with handlers to scare away the birds. And so the consortium of the Opera House, the Opera Bar, and the Opera Kitchen, three private businesses, they just signed a $376,000 per two-year contract with a organization called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. They supply the uh, protection with the dogs and the handlers and keep the birds
0: away so people can enjoy
1: their, their beer and food
0: instead of seabirds just being about while diners are eating, they would prefer to see dogs just running around. You and... know,
1: I wondered about that too. It's quite a, it must be quite a spectacle and you're trying to have a quiet meal or a romantic meal and you're gonna get distracted looking at the handlers and their dogs do their thing. Absolutely. So, but, but I... it seems to work because they
0: just uh, renewed. And it's better than shooting them like a lot of people would advocate. Yeah. Well, thanks for all that, Peter. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirschner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals.